Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. As always, you're with Darren Lim from the School of Politics and International Relations at the ANU and Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Hi, Alan. Hi, Darren. So Thursday, the 24th of June, it is today. And as always, there's lots happening, but we are going to step away from the news for today's chat and focus on a single topic that has come up various times on previous episodes, including the last one. And we probably won't post this episode until early July because I'm going on leave for a few weeks and we'll return to the news discussion towards the end of July. The topic is democracy and foreign policy. And the reason it has become so prominent is that it appears to have become the central theme of the Biden presidency's external agenda. I deliberately am not saying foreign policy agenda because I think the central theme there is a foreign policy for the middle class, as we've discussed. But in terms of how Biden and his team are engaging with the world, it's been through the lens of a clash of systems with the US and liberal democracies on one side and China and to some extent Russia and their autocratic models of governance on the other. If we go back to March when the White House released the Interim National Security Strategic Guidance, kind of like a mini national security statement or a mini national security strategy. I want to frame today's conversation by quoting a somewhat lengthy extract from the president's cover letter to the document. So, quote, We will only succeed in advancing American interests and upholding our universal values by working in common cause with our closest allies and partners, and by renewing our own enduring sources of national strength. That begins with the revitalization of our most fundamental advantage, our democracy. I believe we are in the midst of an historic and fundamental debate about the future direction of our world. There are those who argue, given all the challenges we face, Autocracy is the best way forward. And there are those who understand that democracy is essential to meeting all the challenges of our changing world. I firmly believe that democracy holds the key to freedom, prosperity, peace, and dignity. We must now demonstrate with a clarity that dispels any doubt that democracy can still deliver for our people and for people around the world, end quote. So our plan today is to, to begin with the Biden administration's focus and some broader questions from that, and then we'll think about how Australia fits in towards the end of the episode. So, Alan, my first question is to inquire into the historical baggage, can we call it, with a foreign policy agenda focused on democracy. I mean, my first thought is to think about the neoconservative ideology, the neocons inside the Bush administration of the early 2000s, Bush 43, and of course the Iraq calamity. What parallels or analogies do you reach for when thinking about such approaches? We're in a very different world here from that of the confident Washington neocons at the beginning of the century. That group of policy makers looked outward with, you know, missionary zeal. They were mm. convinced that the Middle East could be transformed by new democratic regimes, which the United States 
could help usher into existence, if necessary, with military force and unilaterally. So that was a confident America. Biden's focus on democracy is far more internal. He's much keener on working with others than Bush was. He begins by acknowledging the need to renew and revitalize American democracy. And how could he not, given the Trump years and their aftermath? And he's principally arguing to his own people, I think, that American weight and power in the world will only follow if America shows that, to quote him, democracy can still deliver for our people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree, Alan. And I'd probably go further than simply the need to renew American democracy. I think Biden is fundamentally recognizing that the biggest threat to democracy globally was that which came from the Trump presidency and the political forces that created it, both in their impact on the institutions and conventions and norms of the US's own democracy and in the resulting example that the US then set globally. So this entire doctrine might usefully be framed through the all foreign policy is domestic policy lens, where the domestic objectives are one, rebuilding and strengthening political and civic institutions, both through executive action and legislative reform, and two, and I think more importantly, restoring the confidence of the non-politically engaged public that government can still work in the US. And this is being done mostly through an economic agenda. So he's simultaneously trying to increase the level of institutional antibodies that might prevent a return to Trumpist populism, while also salving the underlying grievances and fractures that caused Trump and his phenomenon in the first place. Personally, I'm very comfortable with this approach because fundamentally, I would agree that backsliding, as they say, in the US itself indeed poses the biggest threat to democracy globally. And I like that Biden has been very open about the US's flaws, and I've mentioned this in the past on the podcast, but that he's framing them not as an inevitable rot, but part of a never-ending cycle of struggle and renewal with every generation needing to remind itself and fight for these values. I mean, Alan, you asked just then, how could Biden do anything other than this? I mean, do you think he's been effective in, in on one sense, apologising for the damage the US caused and then beginning to restore America's external credibility through his internal focus? Certainly so, or maybe it's really half so, if you look at the polling. Most of the publicity for the latest Lowy poll, which was released during this past week, was on the negative results on China. But the US results were also interesting. And as you'd expect, trust in Biden was much higher among Australians than trust in Trump, 70% compared with 30%. But in response to a question which they've been running now for many years, which is, do you trust America to behave responsibly in the world? Only 61% of Australians do. Now, you know, that's 10% up on Trump. But I reckon Australians are not yet convinced that the change Biden represents is certain to last. Similar reservations are being reported elsewhere in the world. So I think you'd have to say that it's going to take a longer time and more action to shift global sentiment. And given what we're seeing of the entrenched partisanship of federal politics in America now, this uncertainty about the US may be with us for a long time. 
It might be a case of, of once bitten, twice shy. I mean, think about how immediately the bump from Bush 43 to Obama was. Yeah, like, well, absolutely, yeah. All our problems are solved, and now the world's mm. a bit more cautious because yeah. they know that things can quickly backslide again in four or eight years' time. Yeah, I think that's quite right. Let's get to this repeatedly expressed concept of the competition or the clash of systems. To me, there are two logics to this framing. One is based upon a strategic assessment that individual countries' choice of political system will likely have strategic and national security implications for the US, including on the trajectory of major power rivalry and competition with China. The point is we should care about the erosion of democracy, of course, when it leads to the trampling of institutions and state violence in places like Myanmar, but also the gradual erosion of democratic principles and liberal freedoms anywhere. Importantly, the Biden vision isn't about imposing democracy on others, and it isn't focused narrowly on the specific processes of elections. It's much broader than that and seems fundamentally to be rooted in persuasion. So if I'm right, there's a genuine battle for ideas here with material and non-material dimensions. The material question is, of course, which system delivers? You know, A democracy agenda is therefore about making the case that democracy will improve people's lives, their material conditions, which would need to be both in the sense of physical security and in prosperity. And then you have the non-material dimension. I'm not really sure how to frame this. It's obviously something ideological, perhaps something like that democracy and liberal values are better for human flourishing because they elevate individual dignity, they are inclusive, and of course they promote freedom. And opposing this, of course, would be this alternative vision that elevates the group, that emphasises order and stability, dare I say harmony, in a group-centred ideology and likely would have a heavy dose of nationalism and emphasis on a distinctive culture as well. So, I mean, I'm struggling with trying to articulate this, Alan. There's, there's a lot for you to respond to there. So let me try to summarise it into one piece, which is the assessment that regime type matters and that we want more liberal democracies in the world. And the second half would be that there is a battle of ideas with competing systems battling upon material and non-material dimensions. What do you think? Am I Have I put the pieces together? And should the US be concerning itself with these things? Well, I don't disagree with you on either point. More liberal democracies would be nice. And there's a battle for ideas out there. So yeah, tick to that. But look, that's not the main point for me. Uh, maybe it's best if I just begin with some general comments on the way I see foreign policy. Okay. And here's here's where I start. In the constantly changing world of international politics, nations, of course, need lots of things to succeed. And by succeed, I mean ensure their citizens have prosperous and secure lives. So to do that, they need a growing economy, a strong security force, resilient institutions. All that's the art of government, the visionary and effective coordination of all those elements by the political leadership. And I would describe that as statecraft. So I begin from, from that level, statecraft. Foreign policy, for me, is the part of statecraft whose purpose is the slow, grinding job of managing differences between actors in the international system. The daily business of engagement, negotiation, action, reaction, across the span of government activities, both you know, bilateral and multilateral, 
through which our countries advance their interests and protect their values. It's the arduous, if you like, task of constructing brick by brick the foundations of a stable international order. Now, for me, foreign policy is not the same thing as diplomacy. I, I think of diplomacy as its operating system. Diplomacy, as practiced by diplomats, has its own language and practice, of course, but in its elements of persuasion and negotiation, it operates in every human interaction you can think of. Foreign policy has to have purpose and objectives. It's not simply sort of waiting back and seeing what turns up every morning and responding to it. But it's not a teleological process. That is, there's no end point you can reach with foreign policy any more than the economy can have a destination. So look, I'm a liberal Democrat. That's the system I want to live under. And I'm confident that over time, it delivers the best results for Australia. And if we believe all the things we say about liberal democracy, that it you know, enables you to adjust more quickly than autocracies do, it gives people more freedom to innovate and so on, then we should all be equally confident about that. But I don't think that the objective of my country's foreign policy should be to bring every other state into the same system. It's great if people look at Australia and say, we want to live like that, but it's not necessary for our statecraft. We can find ways of aligning our interests with governments of many different sorts. Alan, you defined foreign policy as part of statecraft and you defined diplomacy, but you didn't mention grand strategy, which is a contested term in international relations scholarship. And no doubt reflecting the biases that come from my PhD training. I think of the concept of grand strategy as coming very much out of military history. Names like Clausewitz, Basil Little Hart, Paul Kennedy, which means roughly something like how a nation utilises all of its resources towards achieving a desired state of the world. Often this means winning wars, but it's broader than that. Strategy is a theory of victory. Grand strategy is a theory of security. So to link this back to democracy, the argument would go that the security of the United States and its allies and partners is affected by the political trajectory of other states in the system. And it's more sophisticated than the famous democratic peace theory, which posits that mature democracies don't fight wars with each other. Rather, in this present moment in the 21st century, it identifies complex mechanisms through which autocracies and illiberal democracies make choices that affect the balance of power, that affect the international order, and other things, all of which are, of course, relevant to the national security and the national interest of Western states and liberal democracies. And this is not to say that you know, autocracies should be transformed into democracies, since we've seen, one, that's unlikely to succeed when people try, and two, the attempt to do so can create greater insecurity. But it is a recognition that the rise and fall of democracies is not just relevant to our values, but to our concrete interests. So my question is, how do you see grand strategy fitting alongside foreign policy and diplomacy? Really interesting that you asked that 
question, Darren, but I think I want you to ask it again to me in a month because, as it happens, I've been invited to give a lecture on just that subject at the War College in Canberra in July, and I need to do a hell of a lot more thinking about grand strategy before I subject myself to the critique of a room full of professional military officers. But look, as a first response, I would say that I think that for a country Australia's size, grand strategy is out of reach, but I'll get back to you on that one. But look, you just said that it's unlikely autocracies can be transformed into democracies from outside and that it might be worse for our security if we try, and that sounds sensible to me. But then isn't all you're left with the obvious idea that if, if everyone was more like us, the world would be an easier place to manage. Yeah, who can argue? I don't argue with that, but the, the question is, what does easier place to manage mean now? Are the consequences of it being difficult more substantial in the year 2021 than they might have been previously? I don't know. Yeah. All right. Well, look, I'm not going to answer that, but I would like to go back for a moment to an earlier issue you raised. You talked about the material and non-material dimensions involved in the promotion of democracy, and I didn't really uh, answer you. But surely one of the the problems at the moment is that the particularly liberal economic dimensions of the liberal democracy coalition, as you call it, are being backpedalled like crazy in areas from industry policy to state intervention to protectionism, we're beginning to look a lot more like China, aren't we? And isn't that sending a message that autocracies can in fact do some things more efficiently than democracies? It's not so long ago that both sides of Australian politics were proclaiming openness as a distinctly Australian value, and we haven't been hearing much of that recently. Yeah, you raised a terrific point, Alan. I mean, I think in eras gone and past, when you thought of capitalist liberal democracies, it was a package of institutions and rules that all went together and stood clearly opposed, maybe the Cold War is the best example, to not just a political model, but an economic model that was very different and functioned differently, had different objectives, and it turned out, you know, failed certainly on the economic, which probably led to the political failure. And now we can't be so simplistic in presenting a packaged model because, as you say, parts of the liberal democratic capitalist model have been proven to not work well in today's world, interdependent globalised world. We have to, you know, hive those off, do things that look like economic policies from the other model while still being able to maintain a broader rhetorical stance that our way of doing things is better. We have to try, though, because... The alternative is to accept you know, somewhat of a package of, of alternative political principles that go with those economic principles. And with, that's, yeah, that's the reason we're having this conversation, I suppose. Yeah, life's getting harder. <laughs> <laughs> to me, the other logic, I mentioned I thought there were two for this competition of systems framing, is as an organising principle for international cooperation and reforming or updating the international order. This, I think also reflects a strategic judgment that on many issues, broad-based multilateral cooperation is either no longer possible or tilted against liberal democratic interests. There are too many veto points and the autocratic vision of the order is too incompatible. 
I see this most in areas of critical technology standards and decoupling. And in many ways, it is a very pessimistic vision because it says that we are only likely to get along with our friends in this space. So we should set an agenda and build momentum together with them and use that as leverage to bring other states sort of on sitting on the fence into the tent. Now, this logic is probably the most problematic of all the ones I've, I've outlined so far. One, because it doesn't offer any solution to any truly global challenges like climate change. Two, because what do you do then with illiberal democracies or elected autocracies, which in many ways represent the tyranny of the majority, countries like Hungary, Turkey, and of course, relevant to Australia, India. How much can you work with them using a democratic framing before you become irredeemably hypocritical? So, Alan, we'll get to the concrete policy agenda question next, but let me ask you to react to this. I know you'll say that, and you have already, that we have to work things out with non-democracies, but can we? Is intra-democracy cooperation something that needs to play a bigger role? Well, of course we can work things out with different systems. That's the whole point of foreign policy. (laughs) It's more or less where it started, at least in in its modern guise, with the Peace of Westphalia in 1648. Now, I'm sure all our listeners will remember hearing that after the carnage and slaughter of the Thirty Years' War, Europe's Protestant and Catholic princes finally recognised that they had to find a way of living with each other. Now, this was a big deal, not least because at the time, most of them believed that if you didn't manage to convert your neighbours to your version of religion, they were going to be condemned to eternal damnation. So it was a you know pretty big leap to make. But the result was a series of peace agreements that formalised some of the key ideas we still live with in international relations. State sovereignty, the inviolability of borders, non-interference in the internal affairs of others. Now, you you asked the question about uh, intra-democracy cooperation. Well, on the whole, but not always, intra-democracy cooperation is easier to sustain because levels of trust are higher. But Australia and Vietnam managed to work very well together and not just in regard to China, but in a range of other issues as well. Mm, mm. Well, it's been a long time since I've thought about the Peace of Westphalia, Alan, so I'll happily defer to you on the history. But here is my hesitation. I'm being pessimistic today and, and I'll continue in that vein. Have conditions changed such that the kind of political bargain that we saw in 1648, which, is, as you say, gave us the modern concept of sovereignty, are increasingly hard or impossible to sustain today. To grossly oversimplify, could you say that Westphalia was basically a deal among the princes not to assassinate each other, first and foremost, because at the time, assassination was seen as a morally legitimate way of conducting statecraft. And then secondarily, not to meddle or to meddle a bit less in each other's internal affairs so that each sovereign territory could, as you say, you know, for example, choose its own religion. So my point here is that a stable political order could emerge from that, I mean, somewhat stable, because the world was much less technologically advanced and much less connected. You know, you being Catholic over there didn't affect me being Protestant over here. But in the 21st century, we've seen 
if we go back 20 years, the dangers posed by radicalism and terrorism emerging out of ungoverned spaces or hostile governed spaces, just think of Al-Qaeda and then later ISIS. And now we're seeing the threat posed by the, the free flow of information, both to a country like the US you know, during the 2016 election, for example, but also a country like China every time an, a multinational corporation criticizes its human rights practices. I'm worried now that we are too connected for 400-year-old notions of sovereignty to be the stabilizing force they once were. And what's more, I don't just think that Biden agrees with me. I think Xi Jinping might agree with me too. So, Alan, talk me off a ledge. Am I being too pessimistic? I think you are. Lighten up. <laughs> Look, I think you underestimate, in any case, the connectedness in 17th century Europe. Of course, the world has changed enormously, but didn't you and I, if I remember correctly, declare sovereignty our 2020 word of the year? <laughs> Indeed, <laughs> yes. And if you think all these notions sound incredibly old-fashioned, just look at the text of the Lombok Agreement that Australia and Indonesia negotiated and signed, you know, 375 years or whatever it was on. Mm. So the issues are still weighing on us. They're still concerning the individual nation states in the system. Mm -mm. Well, let's turn then to the question of a concrete policy agenda for the US and its partners, and then we'll get to Australia specifically at the end. So what do you do? You know, it's true that democracies do some things well and autocracies do other things well, as we've already discussed. And I think whether a given politician or a political elite or indeed a mass public prefers one over the other is going to vary greatly. So how can democracies accentuate the positive? And I've got three answers that I'm going to posit, Alan, and then I'll ask for your thoughts or indeed your critique. But my overarching point is that convincing states that are not entrenched democracies nor entrenched autocracies should be first and foremost about the material rather than the non-material. So what do I mean by that? One, coalitions of democracies need to coordinate on the provision of international public goods, the post-war institutions did a great job in the second half of the 20th century under US leadership, but the needs now are different and democracies must demonstrate leadership by providing what's actually needed. You know, Belt and Road is prominent because it is filling an unmet need. You know, vaccines are an immediate unmet need. And of course, Alan, you pointed out last episode, you know, how light on detail the G7's promises on vaccines and infrastructure are at the moment. But I think we are starting off in the right direction. Second, you need to target policymaking that highlights democratic strengths and also the weaknesses of the alternative. So, for example, in the infrastructure space, you're talking about less corruption, less waste, and I think most importantly, a focus on building local capacity in host countries. On vaccines, I, I do wonder whether there might be an argument emerging that there is a benefit on the democracy side for vaccines also. And I'm basing this on the the data we have on the success of the mRNA vaccines versus the data on the deactivated virus vaccines. So um, it's very speculative. You should not take this as gospel in any way, shape or form. But it, you know, there is some data suggesting that the efficacy of the main Chinese vaccines, which do rely on the deactivated virus, are less effective. And this might have tangible policy consequences by keeping China closed longer than it otherwise might be, and of course them seeing the need to 
manufacture Pfizer vaccines. I mean, if you think of how quickly Australia has walked away from AstraZeneca and embraced Pfizer, you can see it happening even in, in a democracy. But look, even if this is correct, and I stress I'm speculating, this only matters, of course, if the US and its partners can get their act together to distribute their vaccines into the developing world at a much, much faster rate. Finally, to get to the non-material, you don't want to ignore it, but you don't want to proselytize specific institutions. You want to focus on broad, basic principles that are hard to argue against. Transparency and accountability, I think, are the two, the best ones. You know, the ideas that people, that publics, that voters, citizens should know what their government is doing and that policymakers should be accountable when they make mistakes. That's all. You know, the US doesn't have a monopoly anymore on defining what a democracy is. And especially given the obvious strategic interest in working with less than fully liberal democracies, you know, Washington can't lean heavily into, I think, soaring rhetoric, and neither should we. What is needed is a simple, practical, and I think probably less ambitious working concept of what democracy is and, 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 and means. What do you think, Alan? I mean, as I was thinking about these, I could see holes everywhere. I mean, am I wasting my time trying to formulate this kind of agenda for the Biden administration? No, no, you're not you're not wasting your time. I really like your emphasis on transparency and accountability. I think that, you know, does give us something practical to work with. And I agree with you about the value of coalition building, whether it's with democracies alone or, or with others. But look, for me, the problem with framing the discussion around systems is one of definitions and where you draw the line. And you've alluded to some of this already, but According to the Economist Intelligence Unit's annual democracy index, and, and that's useful because it takes into account matters like electoral process and pluralism, functioning of government, political participation, democratic political culture and civil liberties. So it's very broad based. If you take that, just 8.4% of the world's population lives in a full democracy. Across the Indo-Pacific, only Australia, New Zealand, Japan and South Korea achieve that rating. The United States is a flawed democracy and the rest of them, ending up in Pyongyang, run the gamut all the way to authoritarian regimes. So you're then in the constant position of trying to, to decide how high you place the bar on what is a democracy and what isn't. Isn't it much easier to simply decide where your interests align with others and work your way forward from there. Of course, those interests can certainly have an, a normative component. I'm not denying that, but I don't think you need to begin with political system. You raise a great point, Alan. I think in response, I would say first that part of this is about restoring a brand, even if only 8.4% of humanity lives in a full democracy. As you sort of led from the outset, the credibility of the US and Western leadership, in a general sense, is tied up with democracy being seen as a well-functioning political model. And this, as we've already discussed, begins at home, but then I think it also extends outward to decisions that are being made across the world by governments and people that you know, push political systems in more or less liberal democratic directions. You know, should you contest an election the way that Samoa's sitting president did, as we discussed in a previous episode? Should you adopt a technology platform on the grounds of public security that could be very easily exploited by the government to quash dissent down the track? Should you insist on transparency in a shiny new investment deal? Like lots of decisions 
that I think you can anchor in, in, in these principles. Maybe I'm being too broad here, and by trying to be so broad, I'm not saying very much. But I come back to, you know, liberal democratic principles being an organising principle, both for collective action between democracies and as a lens which you frame the multitude of consequential choices that affects politics and political institutions in societies. Or am I just engaging in fireside sitting, Alan, you know, chin-stroking sophistry, and I should go and reread The Longest Telegram, that essay I've already mentioned in a previous episode that was published in the War on the Rocks website on the 1st of April. Ah, look, we should all regularly reread The Longest Telegram, Darren. There are some very profound lessons in there for us all, and you should certainly put it on the show page (laughs) yet again. Well, let's finally turn to Australia. Alan, you highlighted Prime Minister Morrison's phrasing from his recent Perth speech that Australia's challenge is to, quote, reinforce, renovate and buttress a world order that favours freedom, end quote. So to what extent should an explicit focus on democracy and Australian foreign policy be prominent in this particular moment? One interesting dimension of the Morrison speech that we didn't talk about last week because I hadn't remembered it then is that he drew that phrase, world order, that favours freedom from George W. Bush's national security advisor, Condoleezza Rice. He actually mentioned the connection in an earlier speech he gave to the UK Policy Exchange back in November. So there is a bit of, you know, neocon DNA in that language. How could we possibly have any objection to cooperation between democratic states when we share the same objectives? I certainly don't. But I do worry that the emphasis on democracy means that Australia is in danger of finding ourselves simply hanging around with old mates, if not the Anglosphere, then the Eurosphere. We need a broader focus for our foreign policy. And for me, the idea of national interests provides it. Mm. Yeah, it's fascinating to see this transformation from Australia acting in our interest which was a title of a Morrison speech that we discussed just a few years ago, to favouring freedom. It's a very stark transition. And as I said last time, I think it reflects the changing occupancy of the White House. Now, I I can't disagree with you, Alan, about interest providing a broader focus. And as I've said, every time I think about democracy as an organising principle, I, I see the roadblocks immediately. But I do have two concerns about sort of your vision. One, that it starts to approach the stark transactionalism of America first, that if you take it too far, you know, Trump was all about our own interests and you still need to find cooperation. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, no you, you, you can't tie me with that brush, Darren. It's a, it, it's a caution. It's, it's not a, an accusation. And two, assuming you can avoid that, do national interests offer that organising principle for concrete and often costly economically or politically, cooperation. You know, we come back to to my earlier pessimism about whether or not national interests can rehabilitate multilateralism. I just worry that it's not enough. But you still have a critical point, Alan. I wonder how many of the countries Australia needs to engage with across the Indo-Pacific will be interested in making democracy a central plank of their engagement with Australia. I mean, obviously, there are countries who will be not at all interested but even those that are closer to democracies in their own political systems, 
may not want to make it have anything to do with their own foreign policy. And of course, there are also many issues where a democracy agenda can be useful, but have nothing to do with China or geopolitical competition. And so I think you need a strategy that is robust to different situations and doesn't all have to be about a competition of, of systems. Anyway, let's wrap things up. I'm happy to give you the last word here. Any parting thoughts? Back to where I started, I think, Darren. By definition, almost, the foreign policy of a liberal democracy has to accept the idea of a diverse and pluralistic world in which we can coexist with different systems. Not abandoning our own principles, but working our way step by step across the treacherous and swampy terrain of the international system in an unending process which preserves peace, advances our interests and protects our values. And in those circumstances, restraint and prudence are essential. As the great Australian scholar and editor Owen Harries used to say, democracy is not an export commodity, but a do-it-yourself enterprise. Well said, Alan. Well, let's wrap up with our final segment, reading, listening and watching. What do you have for us this week? The Secretary of DFAT, Francis Adamson, of course, a former guest on this podcast, mm. retires at the end of this week after five years in the job and a stellar diplomatic career before that, including as ambassador to China. She's going to take up the position of Governor of South Australia later in the year. And I'm recommending the address she gave to the National Press Club on the 23rd of June. The whole thing is well worth reading. She basically structures it around three major themes. Australia's agency in foreign policy. So there's something for you there, Darren. <laughs> Reflections on China and diversity in the foreign service. She has a great line in the speech about Australian diplomats. She says, we are the sharp eyes, the attuned ears and the influential voice of Australia overseas. Now, was it just me? Can't you also hear echoes of the Oath of the Night's Watch, <laughs> Watch from the Game of Thrones and that? I am the sword in the darkness. I am the watcher on the wall. Other words, <laughs> fantastic on you, diplomats. Anyway, as you'd expect from a public servant of Francis's distinction, it's a fine speech in its own right. But if you ever want to give your students a superb example of diplomatic tradecraft, then I, I really recommend it for close textual analysis. Just to take one small example, because you made the point about COVID and vaccine supplies in the past, there's this paragraph that really struck me. Beyond the government's increased support for regional COVID-19 recovery, we need to consider carefully whether our development program and international lending match the needs in our region and the tough competition for influence now underway, to which you can only respond well and delicately said. Uh, anyway, our warm thanks for her service to the nation as the PM, the Foreign Minister and Trade Minister all said at a reception in her honour last night and congratulations to Frances as she goes to this new job. Yes, well said, Alan, and I add my thanks and congratulations to her as well. My recommendation is a podcast I've wanted to recommend for a while. It's 
called LDC. It used to be called Long Distance Call, and it's hosted by my friend Eliza Harvey and her mother, Geraldine Doog. And they started it initially with Eliza living overseas with her family, uh, first in Indonesia and then in Lebanon, where we met. And the premise of the podcast was a daughter calling home to chat to her mum each week. But Eliza and Geraldine are both very distinguished and, and, and prominent ABC journalists. So it's not exactly your normal mother-daughter conversation, but it is still really fun and interesting. You know, they span the gamut of issues from international politics and, and, and federal politics through to sort of more mundane day-to-day chats about life. And the most recent episode, which really struck a chord with me, was on the issue of working from home and finding sort of work-life balance. And you know, Geraldine and, and, and Elijah are both very well read and discussed some sort of new trends in, in how tech gurus in the US are thinking about the need for us to switch off and, and actually improve our productivity by taking proper breaks. So LDC podcast and the most recent episode, I think is actually entitled Working From Home. Okay, well, that's all for today's episode of Australia in the World. We thank AIIA intern Dominique Yap for everything she has done, helping us as our intern. She's off to bigger and better things now. And we also thank Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. Thanks, and we'll talk to you again soon.